So now, as we start back up uh, with today's text, God's people are living in their own land. You know, they're no longer slaves. They're no longer living as foreigners. They've got their own place. God's presence is with them in the Ark of the Covenant, uh, in in the tabernacle. Uh, Forgiveness is available to them through a system of sacrifices provided by God through the priests. They have an established set of laws that tells them how to relate to God and how to relate to one another. And they're living in this land that is fertile and productive and beautiful. It's everything they could have dreamed of. If they can just follow the path that God's laid out for them, they're going to be happy and productive and satisfied. And God is going to bless them in ways that they can't imagine. But they didn't. They didn't choose God's path. And they didn't choose God's path because there's a very fundamental problem that we know arose in the very first week of the story. If you remember from Genesis 3, it's a problem called sin. You know, we often choose our own way instead of God's way. And anything that falls short of God's way is called sin. And sin still reigns in the hearts of people. It was a problem in the garden. It was a problem in the promised land. And it's still a problem even today. I mean, sin still gets God's people into all sorts of trouble. Well, as we discovered in the last chapter a few weeks ago, things went pretty well for the Israelites under Joshua's leadership. There was blessing and favor, and God provided in all sorts of ways. But they made two major mistakes. You know, there were two areas where God specifically instructed his people to do something, and they failed to do it. You know, uh, first, God told the Israelites as they took possession of this promised land that they were to completely drive out or destroy all of the pagan peoples that lived in those lands. But Judges one twenty eight tells us this. It says, when Israel became too strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. And then the first chapter of Judges goes on to talk about, and part of the second chapter goes on to talk about each tribe, each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and how one by one they came up with some kind of excuse for why the people in the land that they were given needed to still live there. You know, these guys are going to make great slaves, or, or they had really good livestock, or their daughters were beautiful. We wanted to marry them. And so God gave them specific instruction, drive out, destroy everybody who's living in this land, and they didn't do it. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, we also talked about how that seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? I mean, coming from God, really, to go and drive out or destroy every person that was living in this land. But if you remember, we used this analogy, and maybe it was a bad analogy, but I bet you remembered it if you were here, that if you have head lice in your house, you know the only way to get rid of them, right, is to kill every bug and every egg. Because if you leave even one behind, they're going to come back with a vengeance, right? We talked about that. Well, this is the same way. You know, God is trying to make a holy nation out of his people. And if there's any trace of unholiness, it's going to infect the whole nation. If you want to be free of the effects of unholiness, they need to be completely gone. And that's what God's trying to do here. And so they didn't drive them all out. That was mistake number one. But mistake number two was even bigger. The second mistake they made was that after Joshua died, the nation of Israel neglected to teach their children about God's faithfulness. Judges 2.10 says that after that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. That's a fancy Old Testament way of saying after they died, okay? After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They, They didn't know him. It became a generation that didn't remember what God had done for them. They didn't remember God using Joseph 
to save them from starvation or God sending plagues on their enemies uh, to preserving his people or God leading them through the wilderness and helping them win every battle to take over the promised land. How sad it is when we fail to equip an entire generation with their own faith in God. You know, parents, hear me when I say this. It, it is a tragedy for you to raise your son to be good enough to play varsity baseball, but have no relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it, it is really sad to see a, a high school girl grow up and, and be on the speech team and the debate team and the National Honor Society or get the lead in the school play, but not have a personal relationship with God. As parents, it is our most important responsibility to prepare them spiritually for life. No matter what you believe, if you're a Christian or not Christian, I think you would agree with me. My, one of my most important or my most important as a parent is to prepare my kids spiritually for life. You agree? One way or the other, yeah? And so if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, that means teaching them about having a personal relationship with Jesus. That's job one, okay? But as parents, sometimes we have the wrong priorities. Does anybody agree with that? As parents, sometimes we have the wrong priorities. So it's like this. Um, Imagine, let's go forward for a minute, okay? Imagine the year is 2025, okay? Uh, Whatever that is, 12 years from now, 2025, uh, specifically January of 2025, and we are about to inaugurate the president. Okay, and it is the first female president. Now, this is not a political statement about who's going to run in 2016, who's going to win. Okay, let's just say it's 2025. We're about to inaugurate the first female president, and she's from Indiana because that's the way we roll, right? So the first female president's from Indiana, and so uh, she's getting ready. It's January. She's getting ready for the inauguration, so she calls her parents back in Indiana, and she says, uh, Dad, she gets her dad on the phone, Dad, I'm so excited. I've got great tickets for you for the inauguration. I can't wait for you and Mom to come. And the dad says, oh, honey, you know, we don't want to be a problem. We, we don't, we're not going to come because it's just, it's too much travel. Mom's got arthritis and I just had my knee replaced and really it'd be too long of a drive for us. And so we're just not going to come. You just do your inauguration thing and you have fun. And, and of course the daughter, you know, this is a big deal for her. And so she says, but dad, I have a plane. You know, I'm going to send Air Force One to pick you up. You won't have to drive. Air Force One's going to come to the airport, Indianapolis International Airport, pick you up. We will whisk you over here. We'll get a limousine to the airport. They will bring you to the inauguration. You don't have to worry about, oh, honey, we don't have anything to wear. Uh, Your mom doesn't fit into her good dresses anymore. And I got rid of my suits when I retired. And so you just go ahead and do your inauguration without me. She's, Dad, we, we have a tailor on staff at the White House. He will come out. He will measure you. He will custom design a suit for you. Uh, I've got a great dress already picked out for mom. It's going to be great. You don't have to worry about what to wear. I'll take care of it. And he says, oh, honey, you've got all that fancy food out there. Uh, you know, mom and I, we're really simple folk. We don't want to make a big deal out of it. You just go do your inauguration thing. It'll be fine. Well, the, the president-elect says, dad, I have my own personal chef now. He can make whatever you want. If you want macaroni and cheese, you want potato salad with mayonnaise, lots of mayonnaise, we can do that. You just come out, you and mom, come out, enjoy the inauguration. You'll have a great time. We've got great seats. You're going to sit right next to the president of the Senate. It's going to be awesome. And so uh, finally the dad relents and they they fly on the plane. They get out to Washington, D.C. They sit down next to the senator and uh, the mom and dad are just beaming as their daughter walks across the stage to be inaugurated as the first female president of the United States. And the dad turns to the senator sitting next to him and says, "Uh, Mr. Senator, you see that girl up there on stage? He said, yes, sir, you must be very proud. And the dad says, I am very proud. You know why? Her brother played basketball at IU. As parents, we don't always celebrate the right things, do we? 
We don't always encourage the right things, but your number one priority is to encourage your kids to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not my job. It's not my primary job. It's not the church's job. It's not the volunteer who's serving in Gen Kids job or in the student ministry's job. Uh, I mean, it is their job. It's part of their job, but they have, we have one hour a week with your kids. You have the other 167. And so you need to use them to teach your kids as best as you can to have a relationship with Jesus. That's the greatest gift of all. So back to Israel. Okay, they're in the promised land now, but they've got this problem. It's a real mess. God's people are not on the right path. Their, their sin has led to devastating consequences. And it's in this context that God starts to raise up the judges to help deal with the sin of his people. Now, as we read chapter 8, we read the book of Judges. There's this cycle that emerges. It becomes apparent very quickly, this pattern of behavior or this cycle. And, and it's repeated over and over and over again. And if you are a great note-taking Christian, which I know a lot of you are, you're going to be disappointed when you open up the worship program and see that there's just blanks in the worship program. We don't have notes for you this week, but we want, we'd like for you, if you want to, if you want to see this, to build this diagram with us. We're going to build this diagram together so you can see the pattern that happens over and over again in the book of Judges. I'll show it to you. And the first step is one, uh, step one is this in the cycle. Step one is disobedience. And this is the first step, and this is where it always starts. Uh, one of the most common phrases in chapter eight or in the book of Judges goes something like this. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Where did this sin come from? Where does it start? Where, well, their primary sin, almost every time, their primary sin was worshiping another God. You know, this was the first commandment that God gave his people. You should have no other God before me. But this is where it always happens. It always starts with the nation of Israel. And sometimes it starts with the people that they let survive in the land. Sometimes it starts with other cultures that they marry into. But, but that's how it happened in the nation of Israel. Time after time, people would start worshiping another God. And that's kind of what it happens today. And if you're a Christian, maybe you've experienced this in your life. You know, you don't allow God to remain your first priority. It opens the door to all kinds of sin and disobedience. You know, but when you do keep God first in your life, when your primary goal is to please him and to follow him, God will radically shape your heart and shape your life. And he'll change how you interact with other people. He'll change how you relate to your spouse. So when the Israelites would choose other gods... Over the one true God, this led to the second step of the cycle. And the second step is consequences. There are always consequences. Their disobedience led to a place where God would remove his hand of protection and allow other nations to oppress them. Now, this is really important to think about and remember that, that God allowed the consequences to happen. Now, God didn't oppress his people. Okay? He's just allowing them to experience the natural consequences of their choices. You know, I've got a friend, I think I said this a couple weeks ago, I have a friend that says you only have to do two things in life. You have to make decisions and you have to live with the consequences of those decisions. And, and that's what's happening here. God is allowing them to live with the consequences of their disobedience. You know, back uh, when Moses was alive, God promised them, he said, if you keep to my commands, then I will make you a holy nation. He says, if you are faithful to me, then I will be faithful in protecting you. But it just proves once again that disobedience has consequences. Six times. If you read through the chapter, six times you see this in the book of Judges. The people disobey God, and six times there are consequences. Each time, Israel is captured or oppressed or tormented by a different enemy. Enemies like the Mesopotamians and the Moabites and the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Ammonites and the Philistines. And so six times we see this pattern, disobedience followed by consequences, and all six times it leads to step three. 
And step three is repentance. Now, repentance is when we realize we've done something wrong and we feel bad about it and we confess it. But that's sometimes where we stop, but that's not where repentance stops. Repentance is when we realize we've done something wrong and we feel bad about it and and we confess it, but then we turn away from it and start going the other direction. We walk back toward God. Now, this is so important because so many times we can be deceived into thinking that because we feel bad about something that we've repented of it. But repentance really means to turn from, you know, to go in another direction. In the case of Israel, every time they reach rock bottom, they turn around and start walking back to God. In fact, um, I like to think of it like this. If you, if you refuse to turn from your sin, you choose to turn your back on God. Okay, and so that's what repentance is all about. Well, this is where the judge comes in. Up to this point in the story, there's been no judge in Israel. But, but at the point of repentance, every time, God will raise up a judge to lead the people to step four. And step four is freedom. Freedom comes through repentance. But that freedom can only come through the experience of repentance. So time after time, this would happen. The Israelites would disobey. They'd face consequences. They would repent of their disobedience. And then they would be led to freedom. And there are a lot of judges talked about this in this chapter uh, and, and in the book of Judges. I think there's 11 of them. But I just want to take a couple minutes to tell you a few of their stories in case you didn't get to read them. Okay, first let's talk about Deborah. Deborah was one of the early judges. And she had, was the most unlikely for the job because she was a woman. And she was a woman leading and living in a man's world. It was very unusual for a woman to have such a position of prominence, both in the political realm as a, as a leader, but also in, in godly realm. I mean, the, the Jewish culture was not uh, as welcoming of women even as today's culture. Okay, so when you think of Deborah, though, don't think of Oprah. All right, what I want you to think about is a cross between um, Margaret Thatcher and that um, Kung Fu lady from Chuck. You know who I'm talking about? And so this is a lady who has great power and great authority and great influence. And it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't common at all for a woman to play such a powerful role in this day. However, God raised up Deborah to be his judge and to lead his people through repentance and back to freedom. Well, probably the most famous story, the most famous judge maybe in the book of Judges is that of Samson. Now, he's the one with the long hair. All right, he's the one with the weak spot for beautiful ladies. If you remember from your Sunday school class, you probably heard a G-rated version of Samson's story. But we always think that the strength of Samson comes from his long hair. But, but the truth of the story of Samson is that the long hair was just a symbol that, that his strength came from God. And he knew that and he recognized that, but that he had made a vow with God uh, to be what they call a Nazarite. And you can read about that, I think, in the book of Numbers. It talks about being a, well, how to be a Nazarite. If you ever want to try that at home, you have to let your hair grow out forever and not put a blade to your head. Um, but, but this is what Samson did. And because he was faithful to God, God gave him great strength. But when he lost his hair, when he was disobedient to God, the spirit of the Lord left him and so did his strength. And then there's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. It's the story of Gideon. Gideon was a farmer from the lowest tribe, from the lowest clan uh, of, in Israel. And when Gideon comes on the scene, the Midianites were ready to level in Israel and take it out once and for all. And they had a massive army 
over 100,000 men in the Midianite army. And Gideon does his best throughout all of Israel to round up 30,000 fighting men, 32,000 actually. Midian has over 100,000. He's ready to take on the Midianites with his 32,000 until God intervenes and says, no, that's too many. Gideon's like, what? They have 100,000. I've got... 30,000, and you're telling me it's too many. And so through a series of events, Gideon's army is scaled down to to 10,000, 22,000 men desert, and there are 10,000 left. And Gideon's like, I don't know about this, God. And God says, you're right, that's still too many. And so through another series of events, Gideon's army is whittled down to just 300 men. 300 men. 300 versus 100,000. Why does God limit Gideon's army to 300 Versus 100,000? Well, because God's going to win this battle. And he's bound and determined to make sure that only one person can get the glory for the victory. And it's him. So here's how the battle went down. And if you remember the story of Joshua, this might sound a little bit familiar to you. But one night, God awoke Gideon and told him, he said, it's time. And you see this on page 110 in the story or in Judges chapter 7. You can read how God told Gideon to get his 300 men ready. Here's what he said. He said, get your trumpets. Sound familiar? (laughs) We're going to battle. Get your trumpets. Get your trumpets. Get your sword, but you're not going to use it. Okay? Get a torch and a sword. When I give you the word, I want you to approach the Midianite camp, smash the pots, raise your torches, and blow your trumpets. And that's what they did. And one night, the Midianites wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of smashing jars and torches and shouts and trumpets. And we'll think about it like this. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and, like, one of your kids is standing there by the bed? And you kind of take a minute and go, or, or like the phone rings, and you don't know if it's a dream or if it's really the phone ringing, and you pick it up, and, you, and you, about 10 minutes into the conversation, you think, am I really talking right now, or am I dreaming this happen? I, I remember one time being in a hotel room, and um, the fire alarm went off in the middle of the night. And it was like, uh, I looked at the clock, and it was 2.30 in the morning, and I, I hear the fire alarm going off, and so I, I know I got to get out. And so I, I put some clothes on, and I run out of the room and I go down to the de- front desk and I, I'm like expecting all these people to be coming out. And, and I look at the front desk and the lady's reading a book and she goes, oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's not really a fire. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. What? what? What's happening here? Because, and then finally I realized, uh, I think I left my key in the room. Can I have a key to my room? You don't, you don't always know what's happening, what's going on. If you have woken up in a situation like that, well, that's what happens with the Midianites. They wake up to this noise. They, they freak out. And if you think about how people did battle back in that time, every company of soldiers would have a trumpet to lead it. You know, you couldn't, if you had a bunch of uh, angry soldiers, you couldn't just talk to them like this. So they have a trumpet to lead it. And so the Midianites thought that every trumpet was a different company of soldiers. And so they get up and they get their swords and they start just slashing at whatever's close to them. And they cut each other to pieces. They basically self-destruct. And meanwhile, Gideon is at a distance up on the hill watching with awe. And he's going, God... You're brilliant. I mean, I could have never thought of anything like that. And on that day, the Israelites rediscovered their freedom. You know, God heard their cries and rescued them once again. I'm telling you, if you don't ever read this book, there are great stories in this book. You need to get it out today and start reading the Bible because there's incredible stuff in there. But at least six times in the story of Judges, uh, over a period of 330 years, we discover this cycle of disobedience, followed by consequences, followed by repentance, followed by freedom. Now, we read this chapter and we sometimes think, these guys are so dense. Don't, don't they see what's happening? I mean, don't they see that every time they step outside of God's design for their life, something goes wrong? But if, if we really take the time to explore our own lives, we can see the very same things. 
You know, we can't figure out why our marriage isn't everything we want it to be, but yet we still watch those movies on the internet. You know, we can't figure out why our friends never want to come to church with us, but then our lives don't really look any different than theirs. You know, we want to get ahead at work or be in a relationship with that person or be successful at that sport, but we're caught in this cycle of of disobedience, of consequences, of repentance, and then of freedom. We're caught in this cycle. You know, but, but the problem in our lives so many times is, is this. We go through one and two, we disobey, and then we face the consequences of that. But we never want to make that step to three. Because we know we don't want to turn from our ways. Like, we like our ways. Our ways are our ways because they're the ways we like to act, right? That's why we call them our ways. But, but don't miss this. Again, you know, if you refuse to turn from your sin, you choose to turn your back on God. In fact, I just want to talk to the Christians in the room for a minute. So if you're not a Christian, uh, tune out for a second, okay? Christians, most of you, there are times in your life, I bet, when you wonder if your life wouldn't be better without God. Now, now maybe you're holier than me and you never think that, okay? But I'm going to talk to the real people for a minute, all right? Christians, do you ever wonder if your life would be better out without good? God, you think of, you see that guy who lied his way to that promotion and you think, man, I wonder if I cheated, if I could have that job or, or you're trying to do things right as a single person, but your girlfriend's living with her boyfriend and she's having all kinds of fun. And you think, I wonder if I wasn't trying to follow Jesus, would my life be better? Well, that's exactly what's happening in Israel at this time. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I don't have to tell you that your life is never better than when you have a close, intimate relationship with God. And if you're not a Christian, come back to me, okay? If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that today. Your life is never better than when you have a close, intimate relationship with God. And I know I'm a pastor, and I know you think, well, he's got to say that. That's what he gets paid to do. But I'm telling you that I spent about half of my life outside of God's will for my life. I, I spent about half of my life where you are. If you're just checking church out, you're not sure about this Jesus thing, let me just tell you, I've been where you are. And I'm here to tell you that my life is never better than when I'm in a close, intimate relationship with God. You know, but in our lives, the cycle that Israel experienced is the same cycle that we see. You know, disobedience, consequences, repentance, and freedom because we sin. It's still there. It's still a problem. It still exists today. And and here's why. Our primary problem is the same one that the Israelites had, that we don't keep God as the number one priority in our lives. And as a result, we constantly live, many of us constantly live in the consequences phase. We, we do something that's disobedient, that's sinful. We feel bad about it. We take the consequences for it, but then we do it again. And then we take the consequences for it, but then we do it again. And we never want to take that step to repentance, you know, and, and we do what we want. And sometimes God leaves us to that. You know, and, and, and all kinds of trouble emerge. We get lost in our addictions or our, our character runs wild. Our choices run wild. We have issues with anger and pride and sexual immorality. We, we chase all the things that make us happy, like sex and money and power and possessions. And all of us are prone to this. You know, 1 John 1.8 says this. says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what happens is we deceive ourselves as we think, well, that, that's just how I am. Yeah, I'm just going to struggle with that for my whole life. That's just how God made me. I'm not good enough to overcome that. So we get stuck in this cycle of disobedience and consequences, disobedience and consequences, because we're worshiping the wrong gods. We're we're listening to the wrong voices. And as a result, 
because we think we're not good enough. We think that God won't take us back. We're not willing to repent. We're not willing to turn from our ways. And because God abhors sin, it hurts our relationship with him. Now, it hurts our relationship with God. It does not break our relationship with God. All right? That's important because it's like this. How many of you have kids? Do you have kids? Raise your hand. How many of you have kids that aren't perfect? Yeah, me too. Mine aren't either. And, and, and when they disobey, it disappoints me. It frustrates me. But it never, ever, ever makes me not love them. I, I, tell, I try to tell my kids as often as I can, there is nothing you can do to make me love you any less. And it's the same way with God. You know, when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they hid from God. You know, when we selfishly choose our own course, when we make God an option or we make God extracurricular in our life, it's not going to take too long before we notice or before we start making statements like, you know, I just, I just don't feel very close to God right now. He, he feels so distant from me. You know, and the challenge is coming to that point of understanding. 1 John 1, 6, right before that, says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, then we don't live out the truth. You know, John is saying, don't trick yourself into believing things are fine if they're not. You know, if things aren't going well in your life or, or they aren't so great in your walk with God right now, could it be that you're spending more time choosing your way over his way? You know, have you been trying to find your identity in things other than God? Maybe you're spending more time in darkness than you think you are. Let me just ask you, what's going on in your heart today? Is it a healthy place or is it a tormented place? You know, is your life full of joy and love for others or... or is it full of things like cynicism and criticism and anger and fear? I mean, some of you are here today and you're in a real mess financially or, or you're in a terrible place at work or your, your marriage or your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend is, is really going bad and, and it's a mess. Now, I want to be careful. I'm not saying that every problem in your life is your fault. Maybe you're the victim of somebody else's sin and, or somebody else's life around you. But more than we realize, like the Israelites, we are just as guilty of choosing our ways over God's ways, you know, and we believe the lie that God is holding out on us. And so we need to go find the life that we've always wanted. You know, God's ways don't seem like as much fun to me. And so I'm going to go find the life that I always wanted. And so we sin, we disobey, and that sin leads to consequences. And when you hit rock bottom, you find yourself desperately searching for freedom, but there's only one path to freedom. And it's through repentance. The good news today is this. The heart of God is to give and to forgive you know, love, not anger, sent Jesus to the cross. You know, Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. He submitted himself, Scripture says, to the cross. And the cross came about as a result of God's desire to forgive. Not reluctance, but his desire. You know, God, who paved a way for the Israelites, has provided a way out for us too. Or let's say a way back to him for you and me as followers of Jesus. He, he desires freedom for his children. But here's the deal. There can be no freedom, no restoration without repentance, you know, without confessing our sin to him and turning from our ways and turning back to him. And he promises that if we will turn back to him, he will keep taking us back. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And maybe that's everything you need to hear today. Because you're here today and you're stuck in this pattern. You're, you're overwhelmed by this life you've been living and the choices you've been making. You've, you've turned your back on God and maybe you've even thought, I'm out of chances. You know, God's tired of taking me back. 
you need to know that God will never grow tired of taking you back. You know, he, he loves to forgive his children. And if, if you're here and you, there's something in your life that you think is too great, too horrible for God to deal with, I'm telling you, there is nothing too great for our God. There is nothing in your life that he can't overcome. But repentance means turning back to God. When you refuse to turn from your sin, you choose to turn your back on God. Repentance begins where we feel the sorrow and anguish for turning our backs on him. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, why is it possible? You know, how, how could it be true that our loving God would, would take us back over and over and over again? Well, it has everything to do with the judge. The final judge. The final judge that God sent is Jesus, his own son. He's our final judge. God sent him at just the right time to help so that we can always find our way back to them. Romans 5, 8 says it this way, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you and me, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to go into a time of prayer in a minute. And I just want to give you a chance to think about this. Think about what is it in your life that you need to repent from? You know, what are the ways that you're struggling with it? You know are your ways. You know they're not God's ways. But you need to be able to turn your back from those ways and turn back to God. Would you just get that in your mind right now? You close your eyes with me. We're going to go into a time of prayer. I just want to give you a minute to hand those off today. Like if you're stuck in this pattern of disobedience and consequences and disobedience and consequences and you're ready to see that freedom from whatever it is that's got a hold on you and you want to hand that over to God right now, will you just get that in your mind? Will you just talk to him for a minute? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and tenth chances. I thank you that you live to forgive, that you sent Jesus so that none of us would have to bear the burden of our sin or bear the shame of our sin. And God, that we wouldn't have to be stuck in this pattern of sin, that, that you have given us this idea of godly sorrow, this idea of repentance so that we can turn away from the ways that we're stuck in and turn back to you. What an awesome promise this morning that if we will feel regret, feel sorrow and confess our sin and turn back toward you, that you will forgive our sin no matter what we've done and no matter how many times we've done it. Lord, I just thank you for that promise this morning. And God, as I know that we've got a whole room full of people that are dealing with all kinds of different things and some of which if I heard their stories, I would be amazed. I wouldn't even understand why they're here, God, but they keep coming back and they keep coming back to you and they keep looking for that freedom that you offer through your son, Jesus. I just pray this morning that they would be encouraged by this message, that they would know that you are here to forgive, that you are waiting like an expectant father to take them back. And even as they think, well, it's not gonna happen one more time, it's, my chances are up. God, that you are waiting for them to poke their head down the street and come running back to you. And I just pray that we do that today, God, that any of us who are caught in a, in a pattern, in a cycle, uh, that we would seek that freedom and look for it through repentance. God, as we go into a time of worship now, I just 
pray that you would help us to see uh, what you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So repentance means turning our back on our sin and turning back toward God. You know, when we make that concerted effort to do that, everything else falls into place. It's like the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Then it says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We're going to do that right now as we go into a time of worship.